When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Starobin, and welcome to America Beyond on the New Books Network. My guest today is Shaul Majid, visiting professor of modern Jewish studies at the Harvard Divinity School. He's a professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College, and he's also rabbi of the Fire Island Synagogue in Seaview, New York. His academic work focuses on Jewish mysticism and modern Jewish thought, with an emphasis on American Judaism, Jewishness, and collective identity. And his books include today's uh, one at hand, Meyer Kahani, Kahana, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical, published in 2021. Shaul, welcome to America and Beyond. Thank you. And I'd like to note that we are talking uh, in a very fluid situation. It's Friday, October the 13th. Israeli troops appear to be on the cusp of a ground invasion of Gaza after the attack on Israeli soil by Hamas. And with that, just uh, briefly, if you can, Shaul, um, who is uh, Meir uh, Kahana and and what brought you to him? So Meir Kahana was an American-born rabbi um, who rose to prominence in the 1960s with the founding of the Jewish Defense League, which we'll talk about more a little bit later on. Uh, He's known for his kind of militancy, militant view about American Jewish identity and American Jewish pride in the United States. And then in Israel, he founds a a, a party called the Kath Party, which was committed to violent and uh, militant action against Palestinians and Arabs. And he was eventually uh, removed from the Israeli parliament according to a law that was passed just for him, which was called the Racism Law that claimed that his politics were racist and his party became illegal. And then he was assassinated in New York City in 1990, 1991. 1991. Yeah. So wherever he is uh, looking uh, at the situation as it's developing in Israel? Is this according to some kind of prophecy that he had? I mean, what would you imagine he is thinking? In some way, yes. There's a very popular uh, graffiti that's been you know, posted all over Israel for many years that reads, Kahana Tzadak, Kahana was right. And basically, I think given the realities that we're living in, although the reality we're living in now is a very, very complicated and liquid one, I think there would be a kind of collective I told you so 
And I think a lot of his followers in, in Israel now are basically, you know, acting that way as if to say that the relationship between the Jews and the Arabs in Israel is a zero-sum game. One side is going to win, one side is going to lose. There's no really pos there's no real possibility of coexistence. There surely is not any possibility of equality for Arabs within a, in a Jewish state. And therefore, in a certain sense, the Arab violence, the Palestinian violence, the Hamas violence, for him would have been totally predictable, which then brings him to his conclusion, which is that uh, that the Arabs simply have to be removed from the country completely. Right. And in fact, uh, you quote him from 1974, there will be no peace between Jews and Arabs as long as it remains a Jewish state of any kind. Correct. And, um, you know, one of the things that serves as a really a cornerstone of Israeli um, political identity is this notion of Israel being a Jewish and democratic state. That actually, many people think that was in the Declaration of Independence, but it wasn't. It was added in the 1980s to, as an addendum to the basic law of Israel. And the notion of a Jewish and democratic state is something that Kahana thought was what he called schizophrenic, meaning impossible. Mm -hmm. That could be, as he said, there could be a Jewish state or there could be an Arab state, but they can't be a Jewish, I'm sorry, they can be a Jewish state or there could be a democratic state, but they can't be a Jewish democratic state. And there was nothing as just to, you know, no. I think to, to punctuate, there was, there is no formal uh, constitution for the state of Israel, correct? That's correct. So in a way, there's a lot of space for, for people like Kahana and others to try to essentially impose their, this kind of vision or conception on Israeli society. That's correct. And and I will say that a lot of people uh, were were troubled by the Jewish and democratic locution, not because they didn't want it to be true, but because they, they recognized that it was a very pre precarious thing to say that something had to be an, an ethno an ethno-national state, meaning a Jewish state, and it could be a democratic state, which would equally include the non- um, the non-Jews within that state. So it's Kahana wasn't the only one who claimed that it was problematic. Kahana was one of the first that claimed that it was impossible. And I think what's happening today is um, that the question of Israel as being a Jewish and democratic state is really on trial in a certain sense. And that's part of what the protests were about. Right. And one aspect of, of Kahana that perhaps is not often uh, brought out among people who are at least familiar with his, his name, some of his life, is, is a kind of uh, almost theocratic aspect or his, his identification with sort of God's plans. And to jump ahead in your book, you get to this in your chapter on militant post-Zionist apocalypticism and his final work. Uh, published in Hebrew and then in English, over 600 pages in Hebrew and over a thousand in English, which he describes arguably the most widely read and popular of his works, certainly in Israel. And you get to this conception of a Musar, Musar text. Right. Um, and uh, I think it's important uh, for people to understand where all of that is 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 coming from uh especially as it as it uh is to the conclusion of your of your of your work on him right so i think you know the, the argument that i made and there are some people who have taken issue with that is that the the um kahana's training in 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 yeshiva in brooklyn 
was in an institution that really held itself to be an institution that had a certain uh, focus on this thing called the Musar tradition. And the Musar tradition was, very briefly, a tradition of um, Jewish, um, I wouldn't say Jewish behaviorism, but a sense of a Jewish approach which focused on trying to correct and and purify uh, the individual's not only those the religious, not only the individual's religious life, but also the individual's ethical life. Right? It was a kind of it was a movement of self. Um, uh, there was a movement of self perfection. In the Hebrew, Hebrew is tikkun hamidot, mm-hmm. right? To fix one's behavioral traits. Mm-hmm. And I think, in some way, what Kahana does in Or Harayon, or the or the Jewish idea, which is the Hebrew, which is the English translation of the book is he collectivizes that idea that that is the Jewish idea is as a book is trying to offer a corrective to the Jewish political culture upon which Zionism was founded. Sure. Because Zion, and we'll go back to America, we'll talk about this as well. The real enemy of the Jews for Kahana are not the Black Panthers, are not the John Birch Society. The real enemy of the Jews for Kahana is liberalism. And, and the problem with Zionism for Kahana and the problem with democracy in Israel for Kahana is that it's based on a, a theory of liberalism that he felt was not applicable to a Jewish state. Now, Kahana believed in democracy and he believed that America was the greatest democracy of human civilization. And he believed that America, in a certain sense, uh, provided Jews with the kind of flourishing and religious freedom that they never had before. But ultimately, even American democracy and American liberalism would never provide a protection against the rise of anti-Semitism. And liberalism in Israel was just reproducing for him a certain kind of Jewish diasporic um, political ideology that he felt was destructive. So in a sense, he was in favor of democracy everywhere except in Israel. Right. Yeah. And, and in Israel, you know, it's very interesting because one of the one of the the basic premises of Zionism as an ideology is to create a Jewish state to normalize the Jews. That somehow the Jews were abnormal as a people living without a state, living without a land in the diaspora, and to normalize the Jews, which which Zionists felt would also have an impact in diminishing anti-Semitism would be to create a nation state like other nation states, a sovereign nation state with an army that can protect themselves, where Jews were able to live freely as Jews. Kahana arguably, uh, interestingly said, it's not that Jews should become a normal people, it's that Jews should become an abnormal people. Only, they, only Israel should become not a normal state, but an abnormal state. And that's where the theocracy comes in, right? He believed that Jews should live according to Torah law, and that would be to dismantle the democracy and to establish a theocracy. And that's right. what to do. And one of the tenets, and again, this is, you know, we're in the shadow of these events, this uh, horrific uh, attack by Hamas on uh, Jewish uh, civilians, Israelis, and others, not only Jewish, in, in, in Gaza and, and, and thereabouts, a massacre of of uh uh some kids basically who were uh, at a rave uh dance 
festival uh, just across a few miles across the border. We have seen all of that. And then we saw the prime minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, vow a mighty vengeance. That's the word, at least in English as it came out. I believe he pronounced it in English. Yeah. And this rang for me uh, from your chapter the, describing the Musar, uh, that uh, in Kahana's uh, vision, it, it creates an angry collective that seeks revenge on those who stand in its path of domination. Now, um, that may be trying to, to, too much to fit in the events because, you know, path of domination, but this theme, Nakama, I guess is the word that you use, uh, you describe as the central tenant of his program for national correction. Right. So it's very interesting. I mean, the two things that we're living in the midst of right now are the months-long protest um, where uh, Israeli society uh, of the center and of the left were arguing that the right-wing government was trying to dismantle democracy by creating an autocracy, by weakening the power of the Supreme Court. That's a man, right? And then you know, and then you have this massive and and barbaric and almost like unprecedented attack of the uh, of Hamas from Gaza, which resulted in the slaughter and murder of of over a thousand Israeli citizens. And I think that's very important to note that it was mostly citizens. Right. And I think that, I think that Kahana, Kahana would say in a certain sense, both of those, he would have predicted both of those things. And he would also see both of those things as somehow linked together. That the, 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 the fact that, that the country was, exercising its liberal muscles, so to speak, to try to prevent the auto the autocratic um, in inclinations of the government, however we understand that, left itself open to the violent attack of Hamas or the Arab population, which in a certain sense crippled Israel from the inside and the outside. In other words, I think one of the things that's so we'll see historically that's so significant about this event is that the attack happened when Israel was already inside of an internal crisis with the, with the, with the, with the, um, with the protests, which was really about Israel as being a Jewish and democratic state. And in a certain sense, it's that vulnerability, which had nothing to do with Hamas. That was totally internal to, to, to Israel. That vulnerability was uh, then, you know, in a certain sense, taken advantage of by Hamas. But the the problem of the Arab and the problem of liberalism, which Kahana claimed those were the two problems in the state of Israel, liberalism and the Arab, they somehow came together on October 7th. And in that sense, I think Kahana would have said, as much as he would have been horrified and mourned what happened, he would have said, yes, this is a combination of the two weaknesses of the country that were not able to that was that 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 the state was not able to hold together. Right. And to finish this off, then what would he or his disciples, maybe they're even speaking now, what would their program be right now? Would it be just essentially to just 
flatten Gaza? Would there be, you know, would it be even wider than that? I mean, where, you know, what is their program given what happened? Well, I think this has happened, first of all, obviously, a an unprecedented um, destruction, flattening of Gaza, which would which would require the deaths of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. Oh, sure. And also, and also, the the um, uh, the eradication of the Arabs in the West Bank. In other words, for him, the, this would be, if anything, a horrible opportunity to remove the Arabs from the country. And so, you know, he has a book called "They Must Go," and he basically makes the claim it is a zero sum game. So he'll say. Look, I he will say, look, I understand. He says this. I understand the Arabs. The Arabs have no less of a national aspiration than the Jews. Right. Like somehow the liberals, he claimed, think that the Arabs will ultimately acquiesce and be or be willing to live as not as equal citizens, but as even non-equal citizens in a Jewish state. And he's saying, no, the Arabs, are, as he would say, jokingly, cleverly, the Arabs are just as Zionist as the Jews. Right. Right. It, 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 yeah. Well, for not to pin yeah, yeah. Well, no, well, not to pin, pin, pin you down, but as as his uh, biographer of sorts or biographer of his of his ideas uh, and conceptions, what is your take on that? I think it's um, or as as a rabbi. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, so, certainly as as someone who wrote about it. It is, uh, I think that Kahana ta- is tapping in to a certain kind of fear, a certain kind of anxiety, and a certain aspect, a certain aspect of the Jewish tradition. Obviously, not the dominant one and not the one that is most operative, but a certain aspect of the Jewish tradition that basically sees the world as always going to be Israel's enemy. Mm-hmm. And that the only possible way of survival is to create an enclave that's non-democratic, that's ethnocentric, and that is able to kind of protect itself against this kind of eternal anti-Semitism. Now, what do I think of that? I think it's a horrific view of Judaism. If that was the view, if if that became the dominant view of Judaism, I would no longer practice Judaism. Right. I mean, if, if that became the dominant view, which it isn't, but I'm saying because it doesn't really speak to um, any kind of universal vision, any kind of responsibility, the whole concept of Israel as being the light to the nations and all of those things is completely erased. And what you get is a kind of chauvinistic political project, which is immoral from my perspective at its core. But it's a kind of a almost a denatured form of uh, Judaism and vision. Although you point out in your book that Kahana, of course, and we're going to get to his American roots, but in this sort of Jewish uh, or the Zionistic uh, Zionist context, I mean, people like Jabotinsky, uh, you know, in, anticipated or came before him, right? I mean, that strand uh, it did not begin with uh, you know with Kahana. Well. Jabotinsky was um, Jabotinsky was one of the only Zionists. Let's say who he was too. No, so, so, so Vladimir Jabotinsky, also Zev Jabotinsky, was a Russian Zionist who basically developed this idea of 
what he called majoritarianism, that, the, that what was most important is that there would be a majority of Jews who would live in the land of Israel, they would create a Jewish state, and he was, he was not in favor of transferring the Arabs out of that state, and he was actually very much an advocate of minority rights, both of Jews in Russia and Arabs in Palestine, but it was a much more militaristic view of what a Jewish political reality would be. He was very influenced by, by the Italian fascists, and in a certain sense, a certain segment of his followers became very fascistic and very violent against the British, the British colonialism on the one hand, and the Arab population on the other. Now, Jabotinsky was a friend of Kahana's father. And whenever Kahana, whenever Jabotinsky would come to America, to New York, to raise money, he would always stay in the Kahana house. So Kahana had met him. Now, Jabotinsky dies in 1940. Kahana is born in 1934. So he was really a six-year-old kid. He, but he has those memories. And if, if you read Kahana on most Zionist figures, the one of the only figures that he feels positive about is Jabotinsky. He didn't like Gurian, he didn't like Herzl, he didn't like any of those other people. Yeah, well, that's not surprising, probably, because I'm sure it was reciprocated in some fashion. What about Menachem Begin? Well, interestingly enough, Menachem Begin um, was one of the only living people that Kahana spoke, spoke of with approval. And I will say... And I can't, I can't get into the details, but those who read the book, there was a very famous Brussels conference about Soviet Jewry that Kahana had not been invited to, but crashed. And there was a meeting about whether to let him stay. And the only person at that conference, and that conference had many of the great world leaders of Jewry, the only person who spoke up in defense of Kahana was Machem Begin. <laughs> but, but, even then, but even at the end... Menachem Begin also abandoned him in the Knesset. He did. Yeah, because I think that even the right-wing parties in the Knesset saw that Kahana was really a revolutionary and he really actually did want to overthrow the country. Hmm. So it was just being outside the boundaries of, of the democratic uh, he was, he was system. Too he was too dangerous, yeah. Right, right. So let's circle back now. So a core theme in the book is his Americanness, which he brought to to Israel uh, when he migrated there. But so where did that come? I mean, how does how did he get to be uh, this figure that we're now talking about? You know, as as is his his philosophy on on Zionism and Jewishness and so forth. How was his upbringing in in Brooklyn a, a kind of a crucible for that? Well, you know that when Kahana grows up. For the most part, in he's born in the 1930s, but he's really growing up mostly in post-war America. Mm -hmm. And the post-war America Jewish world, even the Orthodox world, certainly the modern Orthodox world that Kahana grew up in, was very much a, a world of acculturation. These were people who were trying to be American, and they were adopting all kinds of American lifestyles. For example, Kahana was a lifetime you know, almost fanatical baseball fan. He actually wrote a sports column in the Brooklyn Herald, which was a daily Brooklyn. Uh, who, who was his team? I suppose it was the Yankees or maybe the Dodgers. I Not guess. the Dodgers. Before yeah. the Dodgers left, he must have been a Dodger fan. I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember when the Dodgers so left. Never but, yeah, the Yankees fan exactly. No, or the, well, there was also the Giants. Yeah, I, I have. I have. Um, 
I have. Uh, okay, that's a that's a di- that's a digression. I'm a baseball guy, but yeah. Was very American past the American pastime. He's a very American figure, and he absorbed the counterculture in a very interesting way. So the counterculture, which starts with the Port Huron statement, and then the rise of the New Left, right, and the protests, right. He comes from a place as an Orthodox Jew, who was anti-liberal, but not anti-radical. Mm-hmm. So he took groups like the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, these these minority groups that were that were coming into existence to fight against, in the case of Black Panthers, racism, to fight against poverty, to fight against racism. They're basically a kind of many of them influenced by Marxism, but Kahana was not interested in Marx. Kahana was interested in radicalism. Well, he was, he right. was, he was he, trying to prevent Jewish assimilation. Did he? Well, with the Black Panthers, which is kind of fascinating. I mean, did he associate with the Panthers at all? Or was this just all like stuff he you know heard about or read about? Oh, he 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 hated the Black Panthers. He thought the Black Panthers were anti-Semitic, which in some in some cases some of them maybe were. Well, he didn't. He didn't. It wasn't any kind of personal encounter, but he absorbed the ideology. For example, in in his book, The Story of the Jewish Defense League, which he published in 1975, he has a chapter called Jewish Panthers. Yeah, Jewish Panthers. Yeah, because he he basically said, yeah, I understand what they're doing. They're rising up and militantly fighting against the inequality and the dangers of racism, and I want Jews to do the same thing. Yeah, well, I think an interesting point you make in the book is that we're not really talking about an original thinker. Uh, or, or much of a, a of an intellectual type in, in in Kahana, right? I mean, we're talking about somebody who, it sounds like he's he he kind of rips off a lot of the stuff that's in the culture. He maybe his original contribution is that he makes it, he kind of owns it, uh, you know, in in application to the 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 Jews and, and particularly the you know the Jews at Jewish communities in in New York, which he feels protection. But but there's nothing. Uh, I mean, there really are no like brilliant insights here, right? Yeah, I, I mean, he was he was somebody who really was a vacuum cleaner. He just absorbed vacuum cleaner, and he was a middle brow thinker, right? He he had an education. He went to college. He graduated from law school. Never passed the bar, but you know, he so he had an education. Yeah, not not like an idiot or anything, right. but but you know, read, he read voraciously. Um, he's not reading Kant and Hegel, right? But he's reading he's reading you know. Yeah, he's reading. He's reading pretty widely and pretty voraciously. And he's, as you said, I think he's not an original thinker. He's absorbing other ideas, but then he's applying them in a particular way. So I think the idea of right-wing militancy or reactionary militancy was actually quite new in the 1960s. Most of the militants were on the left. Yes. I mean, later, you know, what we see now, the militancy moved. The weathermen, the SES. Right, yes. Weathermen. Later on, the militancy moved to the right, which we see today. But in those days, the right wing, the, the right wing were not the militants. They were the they were the Barry Goldwaters, right? They were there. They, in a certain sense, were the establishment. Yeah, so he, they were not on the street in the way that the the '60s guys were, in the way that. 
he is. And and let's also say there's an element of, of charisma here. I mean, he may have been a middle-brow thinker, but and, and this is where I tell my my story of uh, growing up in in Worcester, Massachusetts, in the Jewish community. And somebody, my parents, or who knows, pointed me to the appearance of a Meyer Kahana, you know, at the Beth Israel Synagogue, a conservative synagogue. We were the members of a reform synagogue. And I, re- I was there, and there was a kind of a, 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 a sort of an electric uh, air uh, current in that room as he spoke. Uh, and I don't remember much of what he said, but it was all about, you know, he had a kind of swagger and sort of an unapologetic way of, of saying, uh, you know, we're here to protect uh, the Jews, all these sort of niceties, uh, you know, about uh, <clears throat> the liberal society, all that sort of stuff. I mean, it, it, it came across. And so that was, uh, you know, probably in the early 70s. Right. So if you go to the, since you're speaking about Worcester, there was another very famous Jew from Abby Hoffman, who actually, you know, Kahana wrote, Kahana wrote an obituary for him in the Jewish press after Abby Hoffman died. Did he really? Yeah. It was a very critical one. <laughs> okay. But, 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 but Abby Hoffman was once asked on a radio sh- interview what he thought of Mayor Kahana. Mm-hmm. He had a great response. Cool. He said, I agree with his tactics, but I don't agree with his goals. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And in a sense, Kahana and Hoffman were both radicals. They yeah. both right, they both believed in 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 radical politics as a way to overturn the liberal establishment. Yeah. Well, they were they were certainly anti-establishment and I think radical and certainly in the sixties cover covers a lot of ground as well. Uh but Tied to this as well, I, I, I think we need to talk about the creation of the Jewish De- Defense League, which, which at one time was, you know, was really kind of a thing. Yeah, the Jewish Defense League is fascinating because he fa- he founds it in May of 1968, after uh, in response to the strike. And the, by, well, what was the, stri- the strike? The again? strike was the the Brown Ocean Hill Brownsville school strike. Which then uh, resulted in a lot of uh, protests among the African American and Hispanic parents that turned quite anti-Semitic because seventy percent of the of the teachers in this ninety-five percent African American and Hispanic district were white, and a large percentage of the seventy percent of the white teachers were Jews, and Albert Shanker, who was that was then the head of the kind of uh, the teachers federation. So he became a kind of target for some of the African American families. So there was a lot of there was anti-Semitic pamphlets that were handed out in protests around the strike, and this is really the impetus for Kahana founding the Jewish Defense League in May of '68. But in September of '71, he moves to Israel. So in a certain sense, the Kahana the Kahana period of the Jewish Defense League is May '68 to September '71. A very short period of time, right? And what was like? What did they do? What was their most? Uh, I don't know. Fa- famous uh, encounter or, or episode? Well, there were a number of them. There were the the first encounter happened in uh, in in the spring, summer of sixty in in I'm sorry in um, on Halloween of 1968 when uh, traditionally 
blacks would go to this Jewish cemetery and like desecrate the cemetery. So that Halloween of 68, Kahana had his JDL go and hide in the cemetery. And when the blacks came to desecrate the graves, they, the JDL came out and kind of, you know, engaged with them and beat them up. That was like, that was a kind of coming out. So sort of baseball bats, that kind of thing. Baseball jack, nunchucks, chains, and so on, you know, that kind of Okay. Okay. And then there were all kinds of other uh, uh, encounters. For example, um, there was a a uh, a um, African American celebration of African American culture at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that also had some things that Kahada thought were anti-Semitic. So they go and they protest in front of that, or they go and protest in front of a synagogue when uh, uh, when a Reform synagogue in New York City when a black nationalist was invited to talk about reparations. Right, and, right. Yes, that's in your book as well. On the cover of the New York Times. So for Kahana, the gold standard was getting in the New York Times. Right. Well, as, as ever. And that was basically, you know, if he was able to get a photograph and an article in the New York Times, that was basically a success story. Yeah. Well, one could only imagine him now on social media. I mean... Oh, of course, right. He would but, be... But, but the the other thing that happens is it shifts. In December of 69, Kahana walks into the JDL offices in Manhattan and says, I now want to change the entire program. We're going to commit ourselves to Soviet Jewry. Mm-hmm. Now, Soviet Jewry, the, the, the student struggle for Soviet Jewry was founded in 1964. Mm-hmm. So by 1969, it had already been going on for quite a long time. It was founded by Yaakov Bernbaum. And Kahana wrote an article called To Save Soviet Jewry in 1964. And after that, we see almost nothing from him. Suddenly, in 69, he says we have to put all our energy into that. And that's what really brought him national prominence. He took over the Soviet Jewry movement. Right. And then, but then, as you say, 1971, he's in Israel. And... uh... I mean, is it facile to to offer some sort of a link between the uh, you know the African American in his eye in America and the Arab in Israel? Oh, totally. I mean, I think that's that's what's so interesting. That was what was so interesting. Not facile. Um, yeah, is that is that in fact his project in Israel is really an American importation. Mm-hmm. He kind of takes the African American and then makes them into the Arab. And that's one of the reasons why Kahana as a person never really was able to 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 acclimate to Israeli people. Yeah. I mean, how old is he in 1971 when he gets to... Uh, he's in, I guess he's in his 30s, in the 40s. He's in and, his 40s. And I mean, does he actually have any real experience of living amongst a- a- Arab people? So he has none of that. He's grown up in this this very kind of intense, you know, New York uh, political environment with all these sort of uh, tensions that you uh, describe. And then suddenly he's in Israel and, uh, you know, unlike nearly all of the other people there, he really knows nothing about the people who, who inhabit Israel. So I'll give you an example. There are two, the two, one of the two first things that he does when he gets to Israel, he tries to promote legislation that would prohibit Jewish and Arab dating, mm-hmm. number one. And he tries to get the government to remove a group of black Hebrews from Chicago 
who settled in a southern Israeli town of Demona. Well, and the dating thing, I mean, do you think that's about some kind of fear that uh, Jewish women will be attracted to Arab men? Right. On some level, you could say that the Jewish-Arab dating thing was really about intermarriage. But of course, in Israel, no one cared about intermarriage. First of all, you know, why care about intermarriage when you're the majority? That's right. The but I was going to take a point. It wasn't maybe so much about Jewish men being attracted to Arab women. No, it was it was about intermarriage, which was, which was a tremendous issue in the late 1960s or late 1970s. I mean, Kahana wrote a book called Why Be Jewish about intermarriage. So in a certain sense, he comes to Israel. He says, oh, we have to stop this because it'll be intermarriage. And, and the Israelis, Israeli society is like, what? Intermarriage? Like, like yeah, not, intermarriage. not the burning issue. Right. And second of all, they were saying, what? So like a couple of hundred black Hebrews are living in Demona? Like, who cares? Right. But for him, that's the thing. For him, he's thinking in these American categories, racial categories, and it never really translates into the Israel in the Israeli kind of you know cultural milieu, what happens is his followers, who many of whom were native-born Israelis, they begin to kind of translate the the, the the project into a much more Israeli register. But he was he remained American throughout. Right. Well, of course he could he was he could converse with them in in Hebrew and all of that, right? So he wasn't. He was, but he, you know, and his Hebrew was fine. But if you listen to him, uh, you know, if you go on YouTube and listen to him, he spoke Hebrew with a very American accent. They used oh, to be His Hebrew, in terms of linguistically, was very good, but he was never able to kind of, you know, there's this Hebrew term klita, which is like absorption. He was never really to fully absorb into Israeli society. He's a transplant. Yeah, he was a transplant, right? But he but he introduced a certain kind of radical political ideology that he was absorbing from the culture wars and the race wars in the 1960s. He was pulling in Jabotinsky and the militant Zionism of the Zionist revisionists. And one of the one of the more prominent Zionist revisionists who was Jabotinsky's secretary in New York, was Bencio Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu's father. Uh-huh. So there's a real connection there between Netanyahu's vision of Zionism <laughs> and Kahana's vision of Zionism, except Netanyahu as a political figure is not advocating the kinds of things that Kahana was advocating. But if you step back from the tactics and you look at the overall ideology, I think you would find some similarities. Was there a connection then also with uh, Bibi and uh, Maya Kahana? Well, he was young then. Right, um, okay. Remember, Netanyahu was living in Boston. He doesn't come back to Israel until his brother is killed in Entebbe. Okay. Right. And it's not even clear what he envisioned for himself as a life, whether he was going to actually go back to Israel or not. His father, who was an, uh, was an ardent Zionist, spent many years living in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a complicated story. I mean, I don't I don't I, I just don't think that Netanyahu was much of a political actor at the time when Kahana was right. BB Netanyahu. Yeah, BB. Right. They're right. Right. And then so then the story he's in Israel for for you know well it's what, what about twenty years because he's he's assassinated. Uh, uh, you say the year nineteen ninety one. So that's I twenty years after his arrival in uh, after he first showed up in Israel. Although, although for most of that time, he spent about half his time in America. 
either being in America, do a lot of speaking tour, raising money. He was he basically had to spend a year in prison in Pennsylvania because he had kind of like um, uh, uh, transgressed his probation, his probation laws. He was found guilty in in America of arms smuggling, and then he was given uh, a fine and certain and probation. And somehow he broke the probation and he had to come back and he spent a year in prison in Pennsylvania. I see. So he, so he was going back and forth. Right. And that was, yeah, part of just the, the tenor of his I mean, life. Because, because the JDL continued to exist, uh, although it really started to descend into real kind of a street gang by the time, you know, a, a, after a couple of years after he left. And he, there's an internal document that I was able to read from the archives that it, that he comes back and really rebukes the JDL in 1974 by saying like you guys have just basically turned into a street gang like there's no you have no project anymore there's no right in that and in Israel I mean was he ever a direct participant in violence or was he how intimately was he connected with violent people he, oh he was connected with violent people and he was engaged in arms smuggling um, even in Israel. And he spent, he was arrested some 60 times in Israel and spent a lot of time in Israeli jails and spent a year in jail in Ramla because of uh, uh, being accused of sedition. So he, he was he was an outlaw even in Israel. And I think that, that that's what, so, what was so shocking for the Israeli political world was that he was elected into the parliament. It was like yep. electing an outlaw into the parliament. Yeah. Well, then to pull us back to the beginning, then as we we can begin to to close, I mean, this idea of the neo Kahanaism is is uh, I mean, there are his followers, his disciples. I mean, you mentioned the graffiti squalls. I mean, has he come back in some significant oh, I way? With, I think he's come back with a vengeance. Um, you know, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is a very powerful political figure now in Israel, mm -hmm. um, sees himself within the trajectory of Kahana. Um, Betzal Smotrich, to a certain extent, um, a number of other uh, uh, influential Israelis, some of whom were actually for, forbidden to run for Knesset. Sure, I mean, Kahana's influence is... Very, very strong now, maybe stronger than it's been since since his death. And, you know, I, I also I also want to want to, to note that when Kahana was killed, his funeral was in Israel. It was one of the largest funerals in Israeli history. Wow. Right. So and this is a person that was removed from the Knesset because he was a racist. Right. <laughs> right. Well, so the, yeah. You know, so the, influence, the influence is the influence is there. It's very strong. It's more neo Kahanist than Kahanist now. It's more homegrown Israeli. Yes, um, but it's 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 very powerful, and it was threatening uh, to to cripple the country. I mean, I think that there's a. I wouldn't say that this is a Kahanist government. I mean, that would that would certainly not be true. But it is a government where Mayor Kahana is a. Hovering it. Yes. Yes. I can see that. That's a powerful, uh, it's a powerful uh, insight. And and let's, uh, well, let's close on that, uh, Shaul. I, I appreciate your being with us today. It's a very uh, fluid time, as we say. It's it's just kind of an awful time, really, I think, uh, uh, speaking on this on this day. But um, thank you for uh, for sharing your thoughts. I appreciate it. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me.